Hello, hola, shalom. My name is Jake Lewis, and you are listening to From the Top, a weekly book cast where I will read you just the first chapter of a YA, that's a young adult, or middle grade novel, in the hopes that you like it so much, you'll want to go out to your local independent bookstore or public library and grab a copy for yourself to find out what happens. Keep on reading that book. This week's book is uh, one that is probably for the slightly older crowd, upper middle school, possibly even high school due to some of its content. Maybe not so much in the first chapter of it, but I'll tell you the title of it. It's called Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. So right from the title alone, you know that uh, there's gonna be some sad stuff in there too. This is a book by Jesse Andrews. You might have seen or at least heard of the movie adaptation a few years back. But that is what I'm going to share with you on today's episode. I hope you'll join us and thank you for listening. Here we go. All right. So if you've been listening to this show before, from the beginning, you will know that Things have changed since our first episode. We have uh, added some features to each episode, you might want to call it. And so this is the first episode where we are doing a new segment, and it is called... Attack of the Blurb. What is Attack of the Blurb, you're asking yourself? Well, on the back of most books, or sometimes if it's a hardcover on the inside part of the jacket, there is a blurb, which tells you what the book is about. And I am going to attack you with the blurb for the book, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. This is what it says. This is the funniest book you'll ever read about death. It is universally acknowledged truth that high school sucks. But on the first day of his senior year, Greg Gaines thinks he's figured it out. The answer to the basic existential question. How is it possible to exist in a place that sucks so bad? His strategy? Remain at the periphery at all times. Keep an insanely low profile. Make mediocre films with the one person who is even sort of his friend, Earl. This plan works for exactly eight hours. Then Greg's mom forces him to become friends with a girl who has cancer. This brings about the destruction of Greg's entire life. And that is this week's Attack of the Blurb. And I just want to caution you one last time before we jump into chapter one, that again, some of the content that you will hear in this chapter is slightly more mature than previous broadcasts of this show. Uh, I would rate it PG-13, perhaps, if uh, we were going by that system. Now that you know a little bit of what the book's about, let's get into the main portion of this show, the meat and potatoes of From the Top, and that is moi reading you chapter one. And uh, in this edition that I am reading it to you, that didn't sound right, but in the edition that I am reading to you, this looks like it was the movie 
tie-in. So when a movie is released, they sometimes re-release the book with the artwork from the movie. And I'm having a heck of a time finding out when this was published. So I can't tell you that. Usually it's on the inside page, but not here. So let's go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. Chapter one, entitled, How Is It Possible to Exist in a Place That Sucks So Bad? Already, this sounds like your average teenager. So in order to understand everything that happened, you have to start from the premise that high school sucks. Do you accept that premise? Of course you do. It is a universally acknowledged truth that high school sucks. In fact, high school is where we are first introduced to the basic existential question of life. How is it possible to exist in a place that sucks so bad? Well, there's your chapter right there. This guy feels like a, a real uh, a real happy fellow, doesn't he? Most of the time, middle school sucks even worse. But middle school is so pathetic that I can't even bring myself to write about it. So let's just focus on high school. All right. Allow me to introduce myself. Greg S. Gaines, 17. During the period described in this book, I was a senior at Benson High School in lovely inner city Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have a feeling he's being a little sarcastic there. And before we do anything else, it is necessary for us to examine Benson in the specific ways in which it sucks. By the way, I know plenty of people who liked high school. It, it does suck. That That is true. And so you, you wonder why these people liked it. But... I just want to say some people do like it, but something's not right with those people usually. So Benson is on the border of Squirrel Hill, an affluent neighborhood, and Homewood, a non-affluent neighborhood, and it draws upon equal numbers of students from both. On television, it's usually the rich kids who assert control at a high school. However, most of Squirrel Hill's genuinely rich kids go to the local private school, Shady Side Academy. That is the perfect name for a rich kid private school. Shady Side. Sounds like something out of a Disney TV series. The ones that remain are too few to impose any kind of order. I mean, occasionally they try to, and that tends to be more adorable than anything else. Like when Olivia Ryan freaks out about the puddle of urine that appears in one of the stairwells most days between 10.30 and 11 a.m., Shrieking at bystanders in it, let me try that again. Shrieking at bystanders in an insane, misguided attempt to try to figure out who did it. You want to say, Liv, the perpetrator has probably not returned to the scene of the crime. P. Diddy, and that's funny because there was a rapper, I don't think he's still around, who called himself P. Diddy, but P like just the letter. But here in the book, it says P E E, like P. P. Diddy is long gone by now. But even if he did say that, she probably wouldn't stop freaking out. And anyway, my point is that the freak out doesn't have any measurable effect on anything. It's like when a kitten tries to bite something to death. The kitten clearly has the cold-blooded, murderous instinct of a predator. But at the same time, it's this cute little kitten. And all you want to do is stuff it in a shoebox and shoot a video of it for grandmas to watch on YouTube. So the rich kids aren't the alpha group of the school. 
The next most likely demographic would be the church kids. They're plentiful, and they are definitely interested in school domination. However, that strength, the will to dominate, is also their greatest weakness because they spend so much time trying to convince you to hang out with them, and the way they try to do that is by inviting you over to their church. We've got cookies and board games, they say, or that sort of thing. We just got a Wii set up, as in a Nintendo Wii. Something about it, it always seems a little off. Eventually, you realize these same exact sentences are also said by child predators. So the church kids can never be the alpha group either. Their tactics are just too creepy. At many schools, the jocks would be a good bet to ascend to the throne, but at Benson, they're pretty much all black, and many of the white kids are afraid of them. Who else is there to lead the masses? The smart kids? Please. They have no interest in politics. They're hoping simply to attract as little attention as possible until high school is over. Then they can escape to some college where no one will mock them for knowing how an adverb works. Hey, what's wrong with knowing how an adverb works? Huh. The theater kids? That would have been me. The theater kids? My God, it would be a bloody massacre. They would be found beaten to death with their own dog-eared The Wiz songbooks. The Wiz is a musical, by the way. The stoners? Too lacking in initiative. The gangbangers? Too rarely on the premises. The band kids? It would be like the theater kids, except somehow even sadder. The gothy dorks? Impossible, even as a thought experiment. So at the top of the Benson social hierarchy, there is a vacuum. The result? Chaos. Although, let me also note that I'm using overly simplistic categories here. Are there multiple separate groups of smart kids, rich kids, jocks, etc.? Yes. Are there a bunch of groups that don't have easy labels because they're just loose collections of friends without a single defining characteristic? Also, yes. I mean, if you wanted, I could just map out the entire school for you with geeky labels like middle class African-American junior subclick 4C. But I'm pretty sure no one wants me to do that. Not even the members of middle class African-American junior subclick 4C. Jonathan Williams, DeJuan Williams, Dante Young, and until he got really serious about the trombone midway through junior year, Darnell Reynolds. So there are a bunch of groups all jockeying for control, and consequently, all of them want to murder each other. And so the problem is that if you're part of a group, everyone outside of that group wants to murder you. But here's the thing. There's a solution to that problem. Get access to every group. I know, I know, this sounds insane, but it's exactly what I did. I didn't join any group overnight, you understand, but I got access to all of them. The smart kids, the rich kids, the jocks, the stoners, the band kids, the theater kids, the church kids, the gothy dorks. I could walk into any group of kids and not one of them would bat an eye. Everyone used to look at me and think, Greg, he's one of us. Or maybe something like, that guy's on our side. Or at the very least, Greg is a guy who I am not going to flick ketchup at. This was a brutally difficult thing to accomplish. Consider the complications. One, infiltration of any one group must remain concealed to most 
if not all, of the others. If rich kids observe you chatting amiably with goths, the gated community closes its doors to you. If church kids notice you stumbling out of a stoner car, cloaked in smoke as though exiting a sauna, your days of consciously not blurting out the F word in the church basement are over. And if a jock, God forbid, witnesses you hobnobbing with theater kids, he will immediately assume you're gay, and there is no force on earth greater than the fear jocks have of homosexuals. None. It's like the Jewish fear of Nazis, except the complete opposite with regard to who is beating the crap out of whom. So I guess it's more like the Nazi fear of Jews. Two, you cannot become too deeply enmeshed in any one group. This follows from point one above. One must instead be at the periphery at all times. Befriend the Goths, but do not under any circumstances dress like them. Participate in band, but avoid their hour-long jam sessions in the band room after school. Make appearances at the church's ridiculously decked-out rec room, but shun any activity wherein someone is actively talking about Jesus. 3. At lunch, before school, and at all other times in public, you must keep an insanely low profile. I mean, just forget about lunch. Lunch is where you are asked to demonstrate your allegiance to one group or another by sitting with them for all to see, or God forbid, being asked to sit with some poor sap who's not even in a group. It's not that I have anything against groupless kids, obviously. My heart goes out to them, the wretched bastards. In the chimpanzee-ruled jungle of Benson, they are the cripples, hobbling along on the forest floor, unable to escape harassment and torture from the others. Pity them. Yes, befriend them. Never. To befriend them is to share their fate. They try to hook you up by saying things like, Greg, do you want to sit with me? What they are really saying is, please hold still while I stab you in your legs so that you cannot run when we are overtaken by the biting ones. But really, anytime you're in a room with a bunch of groups mixed together, you have to disengage as much as possible. In class, at lunch, wherever. At this point, you must be asking, but what about your friends? You can't ignore your friends if you're in class with them. To which I say, maybe you haven't been paying attention. The whole point is that you can't be friends with anyone. That's the tragedy and the triumph of this whole way of being that I'm talking about. You can't lead a typical high school life. Because here's the thing. The typical high school life sucks. You may be asking, Greg, why are you talking trash on the groupless kids? It sounds like you're basically a groupless kid. You have a point, sort of. The thing is, I was in no group, but I was also in every group. So you can't really describe me as groupless. Honestly, there's no good word for what I was doing. For a while, I thought of myself as a practitioner of high school espionage. But ultimately, that was too misleading of a term. That made it sound like I was sneaking around having illicit sexual liaisons with voluptuous Italian women. For one thing, Benson doesn't have any voluptuous Italian women. The closest thing we have is Mrs. Giordano in the principal's office, and she's kind of lumpy and has a face like a parrot. Also, she does this thing women sometimes do with their eyebrows, where they just completely shave them off and draw new ones in a different weird place with a Sharpie or something. And the more you think about it, the more your stomach starts churning around and you want to claw your own head. That is literally the only appearance Miss Giordano is going to make in this book. Let's move on. 
So that is chapter one of Me and Earl and the Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. We don't know who the character is that's speaking yet. That's probably the me, since he is the one telling the story. We have yet to meet Earl or the Dying Girl. So if you're curious about that, pick up a copy of the book. At this point in the show, we do a little thing I like to call 321. And that is three things that I liked or or thought about while reading this first chapter. Two questions that are lingering after reading it. And then one thing I learned. So let's get right to that. So for the three things that I like, here's the first one. The language that the character uses. And we don't know, you know, what his name is yet. Uh, it is probably the me of the title because um, he's telling the story. But, you know, he calls the chapter, how do things in high school suck so much or something like that? And, you know, he sounds pretty angry. He sounds pretty bitter, which I think is typical of teenagers. And I think in a lot of young adult middle grade books, it's the author has sort of softened it a little bit so that no one gets offended by the language. And it is also shown when he talks about Mrs. Giordino in the uh, in the office. Uh, but that is how teenagers think and and act and talk. And it can be a little bit shocking when you're reading it, especially if you're reading it to people like I am doing to you, even though I don't see you, I don't probably even know you. Um, your face might turn a little bit red, like, oh, is this is this really appropriate? But, you know, it's it's how people feel. And I would imagine that in a book that is about a dying girl, which we get right from the title, the author wants to handle it in an honest way. And so if they uh, faked how teenagers talk, it would take away from the whole point of the book, which I think is going to be, I haven't read this book, but I think it's going to be about this guy's relationship with this dying girl. And, you know, that has to be handled in a responsible yet honest way. So that is the first thing I like about this chapter. Another thing that we learn about the main character, Greg, is even though he's doing all the talking, through the things that he is saying, we learn a lot about him. We know that he's very smart because he uses really good vocabulary, strong vocabulary, uh, when he's talking about how he was able to be in every single group, you know, he says things like infiltration of any one group must remain concealed to most, if not all of the others. That's a, a very wordy and complex statement to make. And that's just, that's just one of them. And the fact alone that he like comes up with this list of how he's able to do it is very clever. Like when he says the bit about it's like the Jewish fear of Nazis, except the complete opposite with regard to who is beating the crap out of whom. So I guess it's more like the Nazi fear of Jews to come up with an idea like that. That's pretty clever uh, and perhaps true. And it's also kind of unfortunate and, and sad. Uh, and so he's making this commentary all at the same time 
with just, you know, a sentence like that. And he ties it all back together. It's like this is an essay for a class where at the very beginning, and even in the book, it's in big, bold letters. How is it possible to exist in a place that sucks so bad? And then he goes on to describing the neighborhood and the kids in the school. And all of this eventually leads back to not being able to have a typical high school life. And that's why high school, in his opinion, truly sucks. So if this is 17-year-old Greg writing this, he's crafted it very smartly. And I like that. And this might seem kind of contradictory to what I have said already. But the third thing I like about this is that Greg doesn't really seem like that nice a guy or not like uh, a typical main character in a, a story where there's nothing wrong with them. So he's got a poor attitude. He kind of makes fun of different groups. And at one point, I mean, he's not making a racist comment necessarily, but I don't know if when I read this next bit to you, I'll repeat it to you. You kind of got a uh, in your, in your stomach. It's the part where uh, at many schools, the jocks would be as a good bet to ascend to the throne, but at Benson, they're pretty much all black and many of the white kids are afraid of them. That is sort of a racist comment to say that white people are afraid of, uh, black people, and there might be some truth in it. And so while Greg is not saying that he is afraid or that white people should be afraid, it's still kind of an uncomfortable truth. Same sort of thing that I talked about earlier. But he makes fun of people like the drama kids being called gay and the goth kids being kind of weird and dressing funny. And then, of course, with Miss Giordano, who says... She looks kind of lumpy and draws on her eyebrows with a marker. That might be an uncomfortable kind of laughter because maybe you can think of somebody with that description. Uh, and so while it might give you that kind of ha-ha, it might be an uncomfortable ha-ha. And again, it's not Greg saying that this is how he feels. He's just pointing out what he feels are the truths. But it's not like he's also saying that they're wrong either. And so what I'm hoping is if this book continues, maybe he becomes by the end uh, a slightly more tolerant or understanding person. All right. Two questions I have now after reading that first chapter. I think the most obvious one is who is Earl? Who is the dying girl? Why doesn't she get a name? We got Earl. It's not like he says Greg and Earl and the dying girl. This is kind of like a journal. So it makes sense that he might say me and Earl and the dying girl. But why doesn't he say the girl's name? Is it because he just wants to rhyme Earl and girl? Well, I mean, it makes a catchy title. I'll give him that. But uh, I wonder what's up with that. And the second question that I have is, who is he writing this for? At the very beginning of the chapter, he says, so in order to understand everything that happened, blah, blah, blah. So he's writing this after the event. And when you say something like to understand everything that happened, it sounds like a lot is going to happen that needs to be explained. So so what is that? Uh, and I'm sure we'll find out as we read. And then when we're done, if we look back and we're like, oh, that's a lot. Now I understand 
why he had to explain it. But who is he explaining it to? Who is his audience besides us reading the book? Is he just writing a book to publish it and make some money? Is he writing a, a speech? So I'm, I'm interested to see why he is writing this in the first place. And whenever you read a book that uh, an author is directly addressing the reader or directly addressing someone, you have to ask yourself why. And finally, the one thing that I learned from this chapter, and this is something I've thought about before, but it's always good to be reminded about it. Be honest in your writing, uh, because that'll just make your characters more honest. Um, you also don't have to always have a likable character right away. It sometimes is harder for the reader to get into a book if they cannot connect with or find something to like in the character who is narrating it or the character who takes up a lot of the book. But I have a feeling that Greg is going to be redeemed. Greg is going to change by the end of this book. Don't don't hold me to it because uh, I haven't read it and I don't have like any way to prove it to you apart from you reading the book. But that's my feeling that it's a risk sometimes for a writer to create a brutally honest character who might say or do things that are unlikable. But if you think about most people in the world, no one is a purely good person or very few people are very few people are. I'm sure there are some who are 110% goodness through and through, but on the whole, I think that we all have our flaws, small ones like Greg has already shown us here and that that's okay to write about. And while it might be jarring at first to a reader, as I've discussed, uh, it can certainly make it an interesting read. Where does this book stack up on the Jayco meter? Well, the Jayco meter is my system of rating these first chapters. If it hits a zero or one, obviously that is among the worst of the first chapters that uh, I will have read. And obviously 10 would be the best. I'm going to say me, Earl, and the dying girl, uh, or sorry, me and Earl and the dying girl falls at a seven. Yeah, a seven. It's it's not the best that I've read so far. It's certainly not the worst. Uh, I've pointed out some of the reasons why I like it, but um, I'm a little hesitant to proceed, to be quite honest with you, because uh, I think this first chapter is trying to catch me off guard to kind of make me a little bit unsure of what's going to happen. Uh, and that's disorienting to me as a reader. And I don't like sad stuff, uh, even though sad stories are important. But whenever anybody dies, unless it's a bad guy in a book, uh, it's sad. So I know sadness awaits me. And that's not a reason enough to not continue the book. But between that and kind of not knowing what to expect, which could also be a good thing, this book, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, by Jesse Andrews, falls at a 7 out of 10 on the Jayco meter.
And that will do it for another episode of From the Top. You heard Me and Earl in The Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. If you'd like to send me an email with a comment, a question, or a request, I'd love to hear from you. You can do that at fromthetopbookcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast to be alerted when the latest episode becomes available. If you could write us a quick five-star review on whichever listening platform you are uh, using, that would be lovely and much appreciated. And we'll be back again next Monday to kick off your week with another first chapter of a YA or middle grade novel. And I hope you will join us then. Until the time, once again, I'm Jake Lewis, and I will see you from the top.